This is Mark Dever. I am here with Keith Getty in Nashville, Tennessee, in the Getty offices on the fourth floor of a former Roman Catholic boys' school. Girls' school. It was a Girls, convent. It was a convent, actually, wasn't it? Convent. Yeah. convent St. Bernard's. This is the floor where they went. This, this is, is very this cool. It's a beautiful day. We got a great view out. But we are here to speak specifically with Keith Getty. This was the floor. This was the equivalent of Southern Florida. This is where the old nuns uh, retired to. Okay. All right. Um, Keith, uh, you are, as people can tell by your accent, from Ireland. That's right. Northern Ireland. The North, yeah. Now, do we need to say Northern Ireland, or does that not matter? Doesn't matter. Okay. Doesn't matter. The accent would be the same. And the accent is a little bit, little bit different in both. And the, and the personalities are different, but you do. You know, I, I've always enjoyed being Irish. I've always enjoyed being, having essentially a Scotch-Irish heritage. And I've always enjoyed, I've also enjoyed growing up in a, in a British education system. So I'm kind of, we, we, we just live with it. We just live with them all. You know, you're deep in the Christian sector. When I was talking to some friends yesterday about how I love the, the Getty Center and the Getty Museum in Los Angeles, in Santa Monica. It's like my favorite place in the world. And this guy gets real big eye and he says, you, you mean like Keith Getty? I said, oh no, this was John Paul Getty. Yeah. This was like, uh, they were all Scotch-Irish. Billions so. of oil dollars. Yeah, that's anyway. right. Yeah, they were all Scotch Irish. I just I will I will say that one thing: the whole the whole the whole Getty clan are. So. But they're not. You're not related to all the. Uh, I have to great say, we Getty never tried. We never, we never we never we never tried. We, I never tried to investigate. They are mm. at one point. They were actually the biggest donators to classical music in the world because because really? John Paul Original's son, number two, uh, Gordon Getty, his brother, is the biggest donator to, to classical music. But wow, not, not quite the same priorities. Uh, Keith is well known as a uh, songwriter and composer. Uh, and I thought before we really get into talking about biography, I would just throw some things out at you, some hymns or songs pastors may use, and tell me what you think. Okay. All I have is Christ. A wonderful song, written by a wonderful chap called Jordan, who's got a few more songs in him, I think. Yeah. Give thanks. Which give thanks? Give thanks with a grateful heart. It's, just, it's a give simple thanks. 70s song. Yeah. You know what? We can never be thankful enough. And um, on the whole balance, if you compare the Psalms to, to any period of hymn writing in the 21st, 21st century, um, it exposes us as pretty unthankful people. Mm. So if for no other reason, then we need to say thank you a lot more, then probably that's a useful thing. All right, here's another one. All creatures of our God and King. St. Francis of Assisi. Yeah, brilliant. Well, it's, the melody, that melody is, is extraordinary. I mean, it's a regular... And yet, and yet, and yet, my three-year-old can sing it. So oh. it shows you the genius of the melody, and it's a, it's a, it's a brilliant, it's a brilliant creation. Hymn. My song is love unknown. I just killed that yeah, one right yeah. there. You could do it correctly. My, my, yes, it's, it's, a, it's a, the melody is by John Ireland, who was a pupil of of Vaughan Williams, um, and that was an incredible school of of English church composers, where all the, all the, there was a period of time where basically all the great English composers. We're doing church music. church music, yeah. and so, so know, they so, themselves weren't believers. Um, some were, some weren't, yeah. and um, some will probably never know. And yeah. uh, but uh, they, but that that melody um, was John Ireland, who was an extraordinary song composer, and is probably one of the I, to me is one of the greatest ten hymn melodies ever written. Um, unfortunately, it's the the, the 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 harmonic nuances of it means most a guitar church probably couldn't ever really appreciate it. Yeah, we use it in our church. Good. It's uh, it's challenging, but the words are just amazing. Oh, it's extraordinary, and the se- and, and and the seven verses provides you with a narrative as well. That actually, that actually, there's, there's a lot more of Christ's humanity in that than, mm-hmm. than even we've managed to do. The, the few songs we've written on Christ that have explored some of those interesting areas of Christ's humanity haven't done as well. Compassion, Him, and others. So it, it it's got an extraordinary value, and I, I tell you as well, it's um it's a beautiful piece. If you want to use a soloist on an occasion for a special occasion, it's a mm. wonderful way of telling the gospel story. And it, it's a song that a classical singer would sing well. So if you're a classical singer and you're wondering, how can I actually use this person in a meaningful way? A beautiful setting of, of, of the John Ireland tune, not the other tune. I don't, the tune they sing over here is really dull. But um, the, the other, that, that tune, it, it's, it's really extraordinary. Um, depth of mercy can there be mercy. Do you know that one? Mm-hmm. Uh, any comments on it? It's okay. Yeah. Good. Last one. Jesus, friend of sinners, or his forever? Jesus, friend of sinners. Yeah, not very pleasant. Not, but not well. You don't know it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, you've been a Christian for how long? I grew up in a Christian home, and so I became a Christian from my earliest years. Okay. And um, so I remember... So the Lord used your parents to draw you to himself? Very much. Very much. Um, I would say the biggest, you know... the so I've never really known a period in my life where I was living in a complete act of rebellion. I think the university years were tough. Um, 
probably because temptation was before me for the first time away from my parents, but also intellectually. I went to I went to Durham University, and that 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 whole circumstance was how we met each other. But I look back in England. I'm sorry, dear, Durham, England. My first year, I was in two. I decided, being from Northern Ireland, I thought, you know, I got to convert this the pagan English to Christianity. Hopefully, the whole university within a semester. And so I'm, I go straight for debates because obviously, if you can beat somebody in an argument and humiliate them, they're going to say, "What must I do to be saved?" <laughs> so I, so I, I get I, two debates. First debate was with a guy who had his, who had a MPhil from from Emmanuel College, Cambridge, and he um, he went from, with Don Cupid. Hmm. And so, of course, this guy didn't... Famous actually, atheist theologian. First, first Anglican to be publicly atheist. And, uh, and so he, he basically tried disproved everything. And, of course, you can imagine, with the best will in the world, my little sort of Presbyterian Belfast thing you know, wasn't, wasn't keeping up. And so that was, and then the second debate was with a chap um, who, had, who had come from a Muslim background, converted to Christianity, gone into, done a, done a degree in theology in Wales, and um, started a master's, as you think, of becoming a pastor. And then converted back to Islam, oh. and had the goal, and had the goal of converting Britain to Islam. So, oh. so my in my first two debates, my faith was basically crushed. But at the same time, the interesting thing was, looking back on it now, in the sovereignty of God, it was it was like an inoculation of the two challenges of the 21st century. You know, world religion, and in particular Islam. And secondly, and secondly, basically, liber- you know, secularism, se- secularism, yeah. and. Um, and so working through those, you know, you introduced me to uh, Kristen's uncle. So I, I, I grabbed a hold of him, John Lennox, which is how I met Kristen. Um, I talked to Andy Winter about it once. He introduced me to you, then Pete Williams. And people like that were extraordinarily helpful. And just cert- the importance of searching out people and actually being honest with the fact that you really haven't a clue rather than pretending it'll go away was really important for me. So how has your wife's uncle, John Lennox, been helpful to you? Um, well, I think he, he basically helped me... Uh, at a number of levels, first of all, he helped me understand that 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 the the Christ who is is revealed in scriptures, um, uh, who was prophesied, who was born, who lived, taught, died, rose, um, and promises to return, is one that 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 we, we can put our trust in. Was well, scriptures that the scriptures were something we could believe that 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 a universe that is created is something that is that it is that is. That is that is logical, and we don't have to throw our minds away to understand. Mm. And um, and John Lennox has a winsome way of doing that. That was extraordinarily helpful. And of course, being from Northern Ireland, there was a warmth, there was a warmth and a and a, and a, a wonderful sort of camaraderie that built up out of that. And then um, and then interestingly, with the Bible study group that I'd started just in a lower section, an upper section of my home, basically we started a Bible study group the year before we went to college, and um, it was basically just to purify a bunch of young boys' conversations. Look, this is how we're going to do it. We're going to have a Bible study, and this will this will wise us up. Of that group, six of them are now pastors. Hmm. I think you probably know some of them, but we're all all the same age, all in the town of Lisburn. Hmm. And um, I went back to them then, and well, as we were talking, as they were all going through college, five of them went to Oxford or Cambridge, and they um they all decided. I'm not going to do law. I'm not going to do maths. I'm going to become a pastor. And Keith, you need to be a pastor too, because if you can pre- if you can teach the Bible, you should be a pastor. Why you know, give up your small ambitions? And and I got it, but at some level I couldn't quite get it. And I talked to John Lennox, and he said he said, well, well, first of all, I think you'd actually be pretty awful at that anyway, just so you know. But secondly, <laughs> he said, I, I as a mathematician, I have been able to reach more people for the gospel through my maths, and you may be that same category. Do you know what I mean? And mm-hmm. so he, he said, he, he encouraged me to keep with my music. And he always said, you know, try and grow your music, but make sure your faith is always growing faster than your music. Mm-hmm. So that's sort of always that sense that, you know, of, of, okay, how do I grow my faith today? Then how do I grow my music and my music career today? Has always been, the dichotomy has always been there. Not that I've got it right a lot of the time, but, but that sense I think was really important. And then when I came to the decision at 30, do I go the orchestral direction or to go to the hymn direction? I, I chose the hymns. And so... I think those those guys and the, and the choices they made, and John Lennox and the advice he's given me was probably the tipping point that pushed me into the career that I had. Obviously, we we wrote we wrote in Sings Like Songs Like in Christ Alone when I was twenty five and did that one. So we 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 built up a catalogue of songs then, but I'd reached a point that I had to really choose one of two careers. Hmm. So so who's influenced you theologically? Because your, your hymns are very full of theology. Yeah. Well, I, I think the biggest theological influence in my life, and I hope it's okay to say this, is my wife. You know, you know, I, I, I say that on a, I, I say that every day because I think it's important that the, the, the people that I, I know and spend time with understand that you know, if you're not praying with your wife, if you're not discussing this stuff with your wife, if you're not letting her talk to you about stuff, 
um, you, are, you are to some degree building up a false premise. And so I always begin with that because, because I, she knows when I'm kidding people, when mm-hmm. other people think, when other people don't spot it. And yet at the same time, she knows in the deep of my soul how much I want to please the Lord. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And other people don't know that. Mm-hmm. You know, so I think I, 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 recently I've kind of felt it's important to, to really state that. And of course, Kristen and I, we've, we, we've you know, we, we work together in our, in our hymns as well. So that, that's important. In terms of the theology, um, we were from, a, it was a Presbyterian church in Lisburn called mm-hmm. Elmwood Presbyterian. And there was a bunch of guys, we were all the same age, um, Marty Cowan, Michael McLenahan, Richard Crichton. Davy Huss, myself, Johnny Douglas, a bunch of guys who all, Johnny Douglas' dad run the Faith Mission Bookshop. So it was just, it was a whole mm-hmm. just crowd of guys all just happened to be the same age by, by coincidence. So we, and we all sort of, we all uh, studied largely, I would say, I would say there was what, it was about eight books really, really we, we started studying the Bible just book by book on this, on, this, on this Saturday night Bible study. So James was the first book we did, Philippians, then Ephesians, then Colossians. We just worked through books and studied them. And then we started to read books. And I would say the big books was um, <coughs> Packers Knowing God was seismic for us. Mm. And John Stott's Cross of Christ mm-hmm. uh, and Cross, Stott's Basic Christianity. Um, Don's book called A Spiritual Reformation. D.A. Carson. Was a yeah. huge thing. And, uh, and, then, and, then, and then Piper's Desiring God. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, actually, and actually, to be honest, I'm, I'm more of a dreamer. So, you know, for me, actually reading something like Packers Among God's Giants, that, mm-hmm. that was huge. I also, my mom's side of the family are all missional brethren. Hmm. So I also was always, always, always read, did a lot of mission stuff as well. Mm -hmm. So I think that combined, and then because of my music, you know, I was always studying classical music. And so I was always studying high church liturgy. So those things were always more prominent in my mind than most Hmm. of my friends. So So who'd be some of your musical influences? Oh gosh. I think, I mean, Bach is my hero. Okay. Um, uh, for, for sure, um, as uh, to me, he's a model of a church musician, essentially a Lutheran church musician. Hmm. And um, but uh, it, it's interesting, you know. I was a I was a field flute player. So at the age of twelve, I took up the flute, and I played it like crazy for a decade. I'd literally get up every morning from six to eight, and um, and I would just practice melodies. Uh, James Galway. Took I was going to say, is this a James Galway well, thing? James, yeah, James actually gave me a couple of classes, and he oh, said really? to me, he said to me, you know. You need to pray. He says, if you can play hymns and Irish melodies beautifully, you can play Mozart beautifully. And huh. when he was back in Ireland in a thing once. And so, so he... Um, how, how did you get to talk to James Galway? It was, well, uh, the, the flip the plane... Everybody in Northern Ireland's related? Or? Uh, um, well, it, it, it was a bit weird. The, the flip plane, I, I, I won a couple of things. And so I got a chance to go to class with him, got a scholarship with him. So that was the chance at the start. Um, but in the end, he actually told me to give up. Huh. Um, you know, but, but I would <laughs> practice for an hour every day just playing hymn melodies and and Irish tunes and um and in the end I wasn't good enough but at the same and 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 ended up being a conductor uh a conductor of doing some symphony orchestra conductor that was that was kind of what what by my training became so did you write parts for orchestral pieces right, or were right. you conducting the orchestra right no I started studying conducting but I ended up getting all my work because I was an arranger of music and okay. a specialist songwriter so between 10 to 20 I would say I was a flute player that never quite made it right 20 to 25 in fact 20 to 30 to be honest I earned my living primarily being a specialist orchestrator of songs oh cool but as much as those things I don't do them now it's interesting looking back they actually formed how I write melodies huh do you know what I mean? Because if you press, but so some place around the age thirty, you had to stop being an orchestrator and really start writing songs for local churches. Well, I was getting. Well, I was writing this. I started writing. We started in Christ alone was the first hymn, and that was about twenty five. But it was a hobby. It's not a bad first. No, hymn. yeah, I should have quit. I should have quit. Yeah, I mean, I'd be a lot happier right now, probably, <laughs> if I just quit and done something else. But, but, um, but I, I we got married at twenty nine and a half, and uh, I realized I wanted to do one thing. I, I just felt the need, the need for hymns for the global church in the 21st century both the english-speaking world and the church in the two-thirds world where 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 most christians are first second third generation christians is so great that 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 any any more time spent being an orchestrator as much as it's a good chance to be in the arts and many more christians than that and i understand all that that seemed to me like a waste of time do you know what i mean when there was a such much more urgent thing to do and so that became Literally one day I quit and I never did it again. But what, I want to know when, when, when Keith is 28 and 29, yeah. what facts are coming before his mind that causes you, you, you to make that kind of decision? What's, 
yeah. what's happening? That's that a great question. Um, do you, by the way, do you want all this stuff about me? Yeah. I feel like yeah. I've been a bit of a moron, but okay. That's because you're that, British and you feel awkward yeah. talking about yourself. Yeah. But we're yeah. Americans. We consume reality right. TV. Okay, so <laughs> I, it was the guidance for me was really slow. It was a number of different things. Um, uh, first of all, um, the, realizing the importance of hymns for the global church. You know, John Stott, when he talked about his Lausanne vision, talked about there are more Christians in the world at the end of the 20th century than any point in history. And of course, the Langham Trust that he set up was very much in that business to build leaders and build programs to help people understand the Bible, become deeper Christians. Well, I had five friends who gave up successful careers as lawyers or businessmen to become pastors. And I couldn't be a pastor. I wasn't that nice a person. So um, at least I could, I could write hymns that teach the Bible. So so I thought this could be this could be this could be my call. And so I sort of felt, you know, or this would be this was a good thing to do with our time. I happened to marry a girl who wrote hymns, so we could do something mm. together. But our first six months of our marriage, we were in eleven different countries, and it was like she was just jumping around, traveling with me and my music. And then mm. a couple of times I traveled with her, and so it wasn't how we imagined growing old, you know. And so I thought, let's do some one thing together. I, you know, you also look at. I think there's a. I think it was just a combination. And, and in Christ alone, it obviously paved the way that there was an identity and, and, and a support. So it was just like let's. It was it was just opportunity, need, skill, and it seemed it was it was a good it was a healthy thing for us as individuals, healthy thing for our marriage, um, and it, so it was just it, it just seemed a logical thing. It was it was pretty shocking at the time because I was so involved in the other. You know, and so to literally quit in a day was it was a little bit mm. odd. But you know, I look back at it and go, you know, I, I spent ten years studying classic melody, and the ten years before that, trying to make beautiful Irish tunes and the flute. And so I think that gives you a distinct. You know, I, I write. I don't write. I think one of the things I say to young people who want to write melodies and, and hymns is almost all the hymns I hear sound exactly the same. You know, whereas you know I am sadly you know from a conservative Irish home conservative Irish home, grew up Presbyterian, studied classic music and classic tunes. Well, you can listen to my hymns and go, well, that's obvious, because those are the, those are the things that uniquely inform it. So I do encourage people to, to, to lean into the skills that they have. If you've creative skills, lean into those creative skills a little more and not try and sound contrived and like what else is around there, mm-hmm. you know, because I think that does help. And I, I see, you know, and also I think, I think to write, to write hymns that will last, there is, there is a level of poetry that Stuart Townend and to a degree Kristen have that I've, I've almost never seen in, in anywhere else in modern songwriting. You know, mm. just not, not theology, actually just the sense of just sheer poetry and imagery and the way they use a word that sings and watching the two of them argue, you know, I mean, you know, it's, uh, it, you know, you know we, we stood beneath the cross of Jesus and looked and we said the Christmas cross and gazed on his face and looked on his face and gazed at his face and all these different how they sing and how, how, how I mean you know the hours they spend on their poetry Stuart spent 15 months on the power of the cross you know mm. just just angling that and so so I, I, I encourage people to lean into to the, the, their background but also to lean into the classical arts as well because I think I think um, there's a value in songs that we carry with us through life and, and it's a value you know for me for me, I don't have as much talent as some people. So for me, that's 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 maybe recording. For my last project, Facing a Task Unfinished, we, I think I recorded or wrote fifteen hundred melodies, to get what eight, you know, and even then, Merker's tunes better than any of mine. So, you know. <laughs> so the, what happened to the other fourteen hundred ninety-two? Yeah, they're just sitting there somewhere or dumped, you know. But you, you know, you you work at it. You, you, it's a it's a constant process. Uh, Stuart Townend, you mentioned, was he part of your bridge into doing this? Oh, yeah. He, he and I were co-wrote in Christ Alone. So that was pretty much largely his, his lyric. And, but uh, how did he find you or you find him? How did that well, begin? he had written a song called How Deep the Father's Love. And I was Beautiful sitting, song. I was, sitting in a, I was sitting in a church one day and I went, that's what I want to do in my life. And huh. so that is because I was... I was well, that's I, a crucial little bit you left out. No, sorry. Yeah, I heard it. Yeah, I was just at church one day and I heard it and I just went, this is, this is just unbelievable. You know, I remember where I was sitting. So what, you're 24? I was 22. Three then there'll be twenty three. Now, how old were you when I met you? Because I met you when you oh, were I was I was nineteen undergrad at Durham. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So was, a few years after that, you're in a Christian meeting. Yeah, and somebody puts up how deep the Father's yeah. love for the first time you hear it. Yeah, yeah, but it was it was it was I was I was so extraordinarily frustrated by church music, and that's not to excuse all my behavior or all the jokes or all the quips that I made about it, because um, they weren't all done in in a, in a tasteful or reverential manner that the Lord would have been pleased with, but. 
But there was just such an incredible restlessness. You know, I could go out for an evening and just get annoyed about it for the whole night. And so, so, um, so, you know, you know that that was really the, that was a, a click point for me. Well, let, let's shift from Keith Getty to church music. What we do in church, and this is where I hope pastors who are listening to this will keep on listening because Keith and I have talked about this before, and I think we would both agree that the music in the church is fundamentally the responsibility of the leadership of the church. And that includes the senior pastor. It's not just to be seconded and left entirely to the music person. I, you know, Chris and I have traveled for 10 years. Um, uh, we, we, we give 12 weeks of our year to traveling and, and I guess being ambassadors for hymns at con with concert tours, with conferences and excel thing and things and a few talks. And, um, the one thing we have learned above all other things is that the single most important person for any church's congregational singing is the pastor. Hmm. It is not the music. It is not the music program. It is not the music budget. It is not the musical style. I remember the first, we, we got to a point, we started, as we were giving talks, we did a survey for, 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 for about 15, 20 leadership events, asking, well, what's the first question you ask on a Monday morning when you get your coffee and you're reviewing church service? And we realized 15 talks had not one person that said, how did the congregation sing? Hmm. was the first question that not one person did this is the first question I ask about congregational music well that raises extraordinary questions hmm. about what are you building it off what is the what is the first building block you're putting in place and what do you learn in the first place to do and so and the, the other thing is the two churches that we most enjoyed the singing at in that tour was your own church in Brooklyn Tabernacle hmm. well theologically in the gift of the spirit you're very different sociologically very different um, ethnically very different um in terms of musical accompaniment, very different. In terms of choice of songs, very different. But two pastors who are utterly committed uh, to congregational singing. And so at that point, it became very clear to us that you don't, and it probably doesn't take a genius to work this out, that, that you, you don't begin sorting congregational singing by investing in music or people or equipment. You begin with the pastor. Hmm. So one of the big changes that's happened in our own lifetime is in the moving away from hymnals. Um, and getting rid with it often of hymns and replacing them with what you call praise choruses or praise songs uh, up on a projected uh, up front. Uh, do you think that that was, uh, was a good move? Well, <laughs> there's two things. About it certainly gives the pastor or the church more flexibility. Well, there's two things about technology. One is you can't really argue with it, but the other is it shouldn't define us. And but what technology did was there was actually four things happened that were significant. One was one was people moved away from hymn books, right? Which was your curation. The second was, and just to be clear for people who aren't used to that term, when he says curation, what that means is unlike just anybody publishing anything they want on a website, curation means someone with some kind of expertise has sat down and edited those hymns, selected those hymns, made sure the settings fit put them together in sections. It's, it's yeah. all been worked Judeo, on for yeah. you. Judeo-Christian history has really had four forms of curation. One's called the Psalms, one's called liturgy, one's called hymn books, and one is basically localized singing. In other words, until now, you couldn't just grab something from anywhere. You know, you mm -hmm. were part of a community. So, so the first thing was... The first thing was it moved from hymn books to, to, to up on a screen, so that could take anywhere. The second thing is anybody can get anything from anywhere. Um, as you say, and that's because of the internet, right? The third thing is everybody, um, the, the music industry, um, it got killed by the new technology. And so the only way for Christian music companies to make their money was to use, was to essentially use, use guaranteed income, which meant church royalties and church budgets. So the music industry shifted its, its, it, the Christian music industry shifted its emphasis from the nineties, which was trying to be as like the world and get, and get extra buy-in from the, from co contemporary society to actually let's get the guaranteed money we can get from the church to keep our companies floating. And so Christian music speaks in at a very big level. And, and, and probably the majority of Christian companies, uh, radio stations, music companies are, are Wall Street owned. So essentially the Wall Street dollar was actually the determinant on what are the top songs being used. Uh, and then fourthly, with, 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 with that comes a desire that ever with, with the contemporary and with the contemporary and the new technology and young people walking out of church, this, this desire for contemporary all the time. And so, and so those four things leave us with a, a conundrum that, that previous generations didn't have. Um, and so we have to look down, and I think it's all, all these things make it all the more vital for pastors to take the lead, for pastors to know that one day they'll stand before the Lord and say, what are the words I put in this congregation's lives, this congregation? 
who live lives of quiet desperation. So if there's a pastor listening to this who is a pastor of a medium-sized church or a small church, and their church has a building that it's had for decades, and they have hymnals in there, yeah. would you tell them to keep those hymnals? Oh, yeah. I think hymnals are great. So don't get rid of them. Hymnals give us lots of things. Yeah, I mean, I don't think our generation wants to be or can be bound by them. Uh-huh. But at the same time, they give us so many. Hymnals give us so many things because they're first of all they they give it like the Psalms. They the early hymnals were modeled, and, and Luther would talk about this modeling it really on the Psalms, where you you get a broad spectrum of the character or the counsel of God. Mm-hmm. So you have God as a judge. You have God, God of wrath. You have a God who is omniscient, omnipotent. You have a God who's a, a shepherd who yeah, the, desires our the praises. the table of contents uh, yeah. or the index of a hymnal often looks right. like a systematic theology. That's exactly right. So you go through the content of the God of the Bible. You then go through the Bible itself. You then go through what, what you would call light liturgy, so the church's year, which, of course, was curated to give you a balance. Then you go through the church services, which, again, were, were, were curated to do, to do those things. And so with all of those things, then maybe you get hymns for children for each generation. So you, in a hymn book, you get this wonderful balance. Another thing is we get this balance of, you know, the church, it gives you the church universal instead of the church. So one of the things you always say about Capitol Hill Baptist is I love the fact that, you know, I have the 72-year-old in my church who can give me their perspective. I got the young 23-year-old student biting at my heels, wondering why I'm not going harder about this. And, and that energy that makes the church, well, so the church universal. So the, there's things we can still learn from the church fathers or, or from Luther or from Charles Wesley even, or, or, from, or, or from the Calvin Genevan Psalter, even though Charles Wesley might not have been a big fan of that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. but the beauty of it is, we have the or or, or somebody even at one point the Salvation Army choruses that, that that were about trying to reach the streets of London for the gospel and would mm-hmm. do anything for that. Well, those things give us an incredible balance to our things. Modern worship is actually singing a collection of songs, um, which is probably eighty percent, um, you know white males between the ages of 35 and 50, of which I'm one of them. Well, you know written I mean? between 1995 yeah. and 2017. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, well, it's only, I think, I think there's, in the top 50, I think there's only two written uh, before 2000. Really? So, you know, so, wow. so you, you're talking about a small range of guys yeah. from almost all the same background writing songs, who, you know, and so you've, a, you know, I think what we do is a little different, but largely you've a, you've a tiny, tiny so, so if I'm the pastor of a church, there are basically three ways I can put words in front of my congregation for songs to sing. I can have a hymnal. I can have a projected thing up on the front wall or screen, or I could have it in a a bulletin that we print and pass out. Is there another way I'm not thinking of? No. I mean, one of those three ways is how you're probably going to do it. I think the key thing is for the pastors, when it comes to the songs, I would say there's three things they need to remember. Number one, they need to curate the song. So they need to know, this is the catalog of songs. Why does that sound to me like marinate? I mean, I need to stick (laughs) them in some sauce, leave them sitting there overnight until they taste good. These are the 20, 50, I think it's right, 20, 50, 80, 100. What are the songs that I want my people to grow old with? Christianity is not getting easier. Um, in, in, in the West, and believers are the breakdown of, of individuals and family, and even church is is in, at many levels at a critical point. So we want to say, what are the twenty, fifty, eighty, a hundred hymns we want our congregation to grow old with? Secondly, I think we need to be actively involved choosing the songs every week. Um, whether we choose them, whether we're on the group that do it, or whether we, at very least, are making sure our guy knows we care and overseeing it or making suggestions. And then thirdly, we need to sing great songs. Hmm. Life's too short to sing stupid ones. Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? As soon as you sing a bad song, the congregation singing is going to go like this. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? That's and, true. Um, and, uh, so, so Keith just motioned downward with his hand. Yeah, sorry, yes, right. <laughs> I forgot. There was no video. <laughs> downward it, motion. It's, it's like we're on BBC <laughs> Two radio. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, I love it. So uh, um, ask me how, how I help pick songs at our church. How do you pick songs at your church, Dr. Well, Denver? as a pastor... Uh, I have a whole bookcase full of hymnals. Mm-hmm. And three times a year, I will sit down and I will try to pick all the songs for the morning and the evening service for the next four months. Cool. And we base them on a theme. There'll be a different theme for each service based on what the scripture text is, which we'll have established. And then uh, I have a kind of master list of hymns and songs that we use that I think we've sent you before. Mm-hmm. Over 600 songs on there. Now, most of those we're not, we have, we've used once in the last 20 years. But... Mm-hmm. You know, probably three or four hundred of them we've used in the last five years. And probably two to three hundred we've used in the last year. And we keep track of how many times we use them. And uh, so, you know, you have some that may be done once ever. And then you have 
Um, Christ, what burdens bowed thy head, which we you know try to use is not as well known, but it's beautiful imagery. And then some perennial favorites I get as well, or in Christ alone that get used all the time. And uh, I, I try to have a mix of well known and not as well known. I'm always trying to introduce new ones, new to us. Right. They may be 200 years old. Right. Um, I've been especially working in African American hymn books to try to get wow. in good traditional gospel songs but that are saturated with the gospel yeah. uh, in just a different musical genre than our church historically was used to. And we've gotten some, some great stuff from that. I, folk hymns, um, trying to find I'd lo- things. I'd love to see those. Can you send me those? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, two, of the, two of the most recent African-American ones we've used are uh, Where Shall I Be? and uh, All My Help Comes From the Lord. Um, mm-hmm. All my help, all my help. Anyway, um, and so we plan those, and I have those all planned out. And then every Tuesday before the Sunday, we'll have a meeting of the whole staff where we will have the music for all of these printed out, and we'll sing through them, and then we'll do substitutes. Mm-hmm. So guys will attack the basic thing that I've laid down, and they'll make it better. They'll at least make it different, but they'll make it better. And we give special say to whoever's preaching that week and whoever's leading the service. Um, and I try to make sure there are hymns in there and songs that might not be the favorite thing that everybody who's... 26-year-old once, uh, but who actually is going to be the kind of thing that is most useful for the church as a whole. So I'm always trying to think what will help not just who we are, but who we could be. You know, thus my inclusion of hymns that aren't just like what we've already always sung. So one of my joys when we started doing um, uh, Where Shall I Be, which I learned flying around listening in my headphones to, I think, Fisk University Singers, somebody like that. Nashville here. Yeah, that's right. Fantastic. Um, or maybe it was James Abingdon, African American Heritage Hymnal. Anyway, uh, listening to it, just think, boy, that'd be great to do that one. I, I like it, the eschatological nature of it. Well, when I first brought it out, some of the folks didn't like it very much, but others did, and the congregation increasingly got to know it well. Well, my day was made when an older uh, African American woman in our church, who was bringing her mother in her 90s, came up to me and said, Oh, my mom said that was my grandfather's favorite hymn. She hasn't heard that in decades. Yeah. Their, their church had long ago stopped doing it. Mm-hmm. And now here our church was doing it. So I found hymn books to be my friend. The staff are great for kind of immediate curation to help. You know, if, if I'm a little bit more like oh, yeah. you, I'm willing to be experimental musically. Yeah. The staff is going to be thinking more like what will people sing well and enjoy, which yeah. is healthy. That's yeah, really yeah. good. And then we actually print them in the bulletin. Now, that gives us less flexibility than if you put them on an overhead, yeah. you know, project them, or if you have a hymnal. Yeah. But you, on the other hand, people can take those home and use them in personal devotionals. But that's right. I mean, it raises so many points. I mean, I mean, not least of all, I mean, speaking as a non-theologian, but as someone looking on the outside, I mean, the, 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 the theological revival of pastors, Baptist pastors, I've seen in America in, the last, and in this last generation and a half, didn't happen because a bunch of guys suddenly started studying one book of the Bible. They, they learned from those who'd gone before them. They learned from the rich heritage that is our faith and sort of began to read people from past generations. And it's an interesting that that, that same pattern has almost not happened with, with hymn writing. You know, mm. they, they, people have refused to go back and learn from that rather than being obsessed with what is current. So I, I think that as a general thing is a really, really healthy, mm-hmm. healthy pattern. Well, I think something that, that wrecked music for congregational singing in churches was when the rock concert of the 1960s became the youth group of the 1970s, which became the church of the 1980s. So when basically the standard service is going to be one hour long, the first 30 minutes it's dark and the music is as loud as can be because the louder it is, the more people will be excited and the more they'll sing, and then the second 30 minutes is the sermon. I think that is a horrible way to do church. No offense to all my friends I've just offended. <laughs> but I mean, I, th- I think that it tends to overpower the congregation, and I think a more uh, cut-back a more spare accompaniment will tend to encourage congregational singing. I also think singing in parts helps. And I have people tell me all the time, but Bob Coughlin will say this to me, but Mark, people don't know parts. To which my response is, Bob, I don't care if just 5 or 10% of the people know parts. They start singing parts, and the accompaniment is quiet enough that people can hear. There are going to be other people who start hearing it, picking it up, even if they don't officially sing parts. It sounds cool. People like the way it sounds. It helps them meditate. I think it works. There's a couple of factors. The first factor is this, is theologically, if we believe what the Bible teaches us in creation and in throughout the scriptures and, 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 and in the gospel about what, about what singing is, 
then we build our music around our singing. So music is not a conduit towards an emotional goal, a marketing goal, or a branding goal that seems to be what a lot of churches are doing, or a performance goal, which, which seems to be the four sort of other determinants. As well. It's about God's people singing. That is the holy part. The musicians are optional. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? But if they can help it, which usually they can, then they should be encouraged. Um, so I think for any pastor out there, if there's one thing you take away, it's, I think, and why not, why not celebrate the Reformation's 500th anniversary this year by for determining for a year or for two years that every Monday you will say, how did our congregation sing? Mm. And build your music thing around that. So how do we serve God's people? That, that is the, 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 the gold is, is, is the people. I mean, it's, like, it's, like, it's, like a preacher. it's like a preacher who preaches fancy stuff and fancy theology or flashy presentation doesn't love his people. Do you know what I mean? Mm. The people is the gold. And, uh, so Keith, name, name five of your songs that you think congregations can sing well if pastors aren't familiar with them. Let's assume most people have heard of In Christ Alone. Okay. But name five others that you think, I think with God's help, we've been able to do one that's pretty singable and it's useful, conveys good theology. So brothers, look at this. If you haven't noticed it, look at this one. Well, Speak O Lord is the best one for not falling asleep while your pastor's preaching. Oh, we love that one. So we, we do right that one about sermon. every five weeks. Oh, really? For the sermon center rotation. Cool. So that's it's a, a that, wonderful that's, um, Speak O Lord. Yeah, I just finished reading. Would you believe? I just read Jeremiah Burroughs, Trembling at His Word. Remember that little Puritan mm-hmm. book? It was a Sully de Gloria book. Yeah. I read that I thought, I love that trembling. How do we create that trembling mm. fear thing? You know, my... My, my grandfather used to prepare for 40 minutes and serve before church service, getting his mind ready for church service. Mm. How do we do that? So that was the, and start singing, Lo, He Comes with so, Clouds Descending more often, or yeah. Look, He Saints, the Sight is Glorious. So that was, yeah, so that, was that. was that. And uh, gosh, I, I think, I don't know, where do you want to go? Uh, Power of the Cross is a great song. It fits, fits wonderful for your one. communion yeah. services. Yeah. And it, it explains the gospel. A lot of people, we're doing it, we're doing it at Ray Thomas's funeral in D.C. on Monday. Which she's asked, it was, you know, Callan Ray Thomas yeah. lived in your town. So she died the weekend. Oh, and so she, she, but she kept that hymn in her, in her Bible. Huh. And so they called us and said, can you fly in and just on Monday and just do that? And so we're, we're doing that. And it's uh, um, because she, that was how she shared the gospel. So, so that's a really lovely thing. So she wants us to share the gospel with her friends at the funeral. So, you know, that's a, that's a great thing. Um, Oh, Church Arise is a great hymn mm-hmm. of what it we means to be the church. It's a, it's a great... Church Arise. You know, oh, mm-hmm. That's right. And so the Church Arise is, is a good song about what it means to be the church. And, uh, that's a, and it's a great one to start a service with or, or conclude with. a service with. Um, um, I would say if you want to get a big picture of the whole Bible, a song that sort of helps link your Old Testament stuff, to Judaism stuff, even at a really basic level, um, By Faith. By Faith is quite a helpful song. Mm-hmm. Um, Are you doing anything differently now in writing than you were, say, 15 years ago? No, it's as bad as it was. No, seriously. <laughs> what, what, what have you felt you've learned that's, that's changed the way you were, oh, you're man, composing songs? No, it's... it's and, and the answer may be nothing self-conscious. No, it's two things. It's doing the same thing and doing different things. Um, uh, you know, our, uh, Chris and I and Stuart have been writing for 15 years ago. So it's, the same, it's always the same nucleus, but we always bring fresh people in to help us. Um, so I think that has helped a little bit, and then and then um, and then f- just focusing on some different subjects. You know, you know, a number of things. The, the facing a task unfinished had deep impact on us and my childhood and feeling I hadn't had become less missional, and mm. just the desperate need for missional hymns for the cause is a new hymn that they're doing a global hymn sing on this year with, I think, Southeastern Seminary and OMF. It's the Southeastern Seminary hymn. Is, is Margaret Clarkson's stuff still usable, or is that, is that just too time-bound I as far as the used, tunes? I haven't used as much of her stuff, but I think her Because she think composed poetry, a new hymn for Urbana every three years for her, her, decades. Her poetry is wonderful. I, I'm not uh-huh. sure she's ever found a melody. Uh-huh. Um, I think that, that, that quite translates to the modern thing. Um, so, anyway, those are... Um, so the, the, yeah, those is that enough for him? Do you want some more? Yeah. So for the cause is a great new one about evangelism that we're excited about. And with uh, one thing that some of the hearers might not know, but would be interested in, was you landed in a ton of controversy over in Christ alone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We were called which, name, we were called names in the Economist <laughs> of, of London, which you, which you probably didn't expect no. when you wrote in Christ alone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just to tell everybody real quickly what that controversy was. It was absolutely nothing. It was one hymn book. One, the, the PCUSA hymn book was coming out. and um, Actually, two hymn books. There was two hymn books. The, the alternative Baptist hymn book as well. Also, without permission, 
wanted to change. They didn't like the wrath of God being satisfied in verse 3 of Christ alone. They felt it was inappropriate language. Well, depending on their theology, the wrath of God may not be satisfied in yes. that case. So they, um, yeah, they, 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 they felt it was an inappropriate language and an inappropriate mm. sentiment for 21st century people. And so they asked us, would we, for the sake of unity, in their opinion, take that, let them rewrite that verse? And we, we said no. Um, and uh, so then they brought the book out and somebody on the inside liked it that the song had been dropped because of that. Someone asked a question and she, the lady who was in charge of the group, uh, quite, was quite uh, adamant that this, she, was, she was doing a good thing and that we were in the wrong. And I was actually, I was actually in Dublin playing golf at the time, so I, like, I was not aware of anything that was happening. So this becomes this shooting match online between a bunch of websites that blew up and um, then, then someone called it, someone accused us of, of promoting divine child abuse. And so that's when I went to the media. So the Washington Post and USA Today ran stories on us promoting divine child abuse and hymns. And so that's how it, that's kind of how that kind of blew up. So. so if you look at the evangelical church music scene today and you're discouraged at all, let's say you don't think it's, it's everything that it should be. Uh, I know you and I know some of the things you're passionate about promoting uh, we've mentioned congregational singing, but let's also be clear. You want artistry. You want rich biblical theology. Uh, what do you think is most lacking in evangelical church music uh, today? Which of those? Yeah, and, well, and what can pastors do about it? Yeah, yeah. Well, I, um, gosh. Theology, I, I think, I think, artistry, I think, I congregational think, singing. Yeah, sure. I think congregational, if, if we take congregational singing, I think... I think we live in a generation where this could really be very transformative. Um, our mutual friend, Lincoln Duncan, says he is encouraged by the direction preaching is going. He also is encouraged by how, church manage, how churches are being governed, how, church, how even public prayer is being done. He says the thing that is in most need of most reformation is congregational singing. Mm. And I think it is because it is such an extraordinary, powerful thing. You mm. know, if we, if we can build a generation of people who sing deep songs, who sing the Psalms, that is building a deep generation. You know, we, our generation is the first generation where more people leave church when life goes tough than my parents' generation where, you know, the rebellious uncle, mm -hmm. you know, well, when life got tough, he began to sneak back into church. Yeah. Our generation is the opposite phenomenon. And, and in some part, I think it is because the songs are so utterly vacuous and shallow mm -hmm. that they simply underline the secular mm -hmm. accusation that Christianity is simplistic answers to difficult questions. And so I think we need to build deep believers in the songs we sing because even your best sermon, Mark, you know, your congregation go out singing, singing the hymns. That's true. And so we need to build... When people are on their deathbeds, very rarely they're going to remember this pastor from a right. sermon. They're going to be right. humming nothing but right. the blood. Yeah, we live in the most exciting generation in history to be Christian. I, I wouldn't want, even though I was a classical musician, as my music's kind of not as hot as it might have been a generation ago I would never have wanted to have been born in our generation the generation we live in the opportunity to be part of the global church is, is extraordinary but the need for deep believers whether you are a Christian in the Dominican Republic whether you're in India whether you're in China whether you're in Memphis wherever it is the need for deep believers is extraordinary and, 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 that, and that's where we have to get out there I think secondly when you look at the, the, the breakdown of family um, the, 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 you know you know the from the Shema on, we, we, we write these truths in our children's hearts. I have three little girls that are five and three and one. Mm. And, um, and I, that is the pattern of God's people. As we write the song in our children's hearts, and I think singing as families together. I remember meeting John MacArthur once, and uh, he, said, he said, I said, any tips on raising children? I'm not, I don't think I'm doing a very good job. And he said, he said well, one good thing, it wasn't the only thing he tip, but one he says, one thing that was massive for our family was we filled every car and every room of the house with songs of the Lord. The rooms where action was happening, the car, but three cassettes in each car, he said, and we rotated them and we sang. And, uh, and um, you know, this one of my friends who I grew up with at Bible study group, his mom, who was an old, you know, fundamentalist lady with 40 much to say, used to, when we used to say something about, a, about this person, we're bringing up the friends, he goes, oh, what's he like? And I went, I don't know what he means. She goes, well, who's his friends and what music does he listen to? Because to her, that was that tells mm -hmm. me enough. That tells me all I need to know about their character and the shape of their character. And it was it was terribly judgmental, but but it, it didn't have not it had a little bit of truth to it. So, you know, to, to build families that sing together, whether it's passively or whether it's active, you don't have to be the one traps. You can just put a CD on and sing along to it. You know, I I, I think builds families together to to see churches that are 
you know, that are, that, are, that are reaching every part of their community and are singing to one another. That is a beautiful thing. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I hear pastors say to me all the time, but our gener- you know, 50 years ago, my grandfather's generation, edu- everything from education to entertainment involved singing. None of it is there now. Mm-hmm. It's, been, it's been wiped out across the board. And I said, but, but that makes the, the witness of it all the more radical. Mm-hmm. That makes witness of it all the more radical. When you go into these places and they're singing to one another, if you go into a big church somewhere and they're, and they're singing like a bad version of Coldplay, that's nothing radical about that. That's just no. another wannabe musician who failed. Do you know what I mean? Let's actually go into a church where people are singing to one another. Mm-hmm. Um, and, then, and then let's remember the radical witness that is congregational singing. Um, congregations that are alive and that are seeing conversions. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a, you know sorry, it can be a wonderful... It's a it's a beautifully warming thing. I was every time I used to go to Charlotte and play, Cliff Barrow used to take me for coffee. Hmm. And so then when he got old, I would do around his house, and his wife would make us this these really high calorie foods, and it was wonderful. But I used to do much. Why? So all, all the other all the other evangelists that Billy's mentor they they do they do like presentational evangelism, and it's fine. Why did you keep the congregational singing in throughout the eighties and nineties? And he goes, because there's nothing as uniquely attractive to people as God's people singing. Do you know what I mean? And mm-hmm. so we have a wonderful opportunity to, 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 to reach the community around us. I, I quit a career where part of what I did was write, be involved in, in writing music that was, had some Christian influence in it mm-hmm. to a mainstream thing and, and, and thought I was giving that up. And yet in Christ alone, the witness of in Christ alone at funerals alone, never mind weddings, never mind, never mind something like radio, you know, the number of non-Christians that that has explained the gospel to, mm-hmm. you know, in 15 years is, is far greater than, than any, any theater show I could ever have created mm-hmm. or been involved in. Um, so, so Alistair Bego says, do the, you know, keep the main things, the plain things. And I think if we can do that well and, and build that up on our churches, we're going to build up, you know, rich, deep, united congregations that are, that are a beautiful testimony to Christ. So if there are elders listening to this, pastors listening to this who want to help their congregation improve in their singing practically what should they do well i think number you're the boss that's the bottom line you know i can't blame eliza's behavior on a saturday afternoon on her ballet teacher as much as i'd like to i can't because i'm her dad yeah so you can't blame anybody else you're responsible you have to grow up um you have to be involved at the song process at each level and then I think you have to invest in your musicians. You have to love your musicians. You have to pour into them uh, and help them on it because that helps them understand what you're, what you're about, what your philosophy is. That helps them understand that you're a boss. That helps them understand that you love them. That helps them understand that you're in ministry together. So many of the most dynamic ministries of the last 100 years from church to parachurch have been a pastor and a musician who got on well. So much of the biggest mess has been a passive-aggressive relationship between a pastor and a musician where they don't really talk to each mm. other and then they, they create two separate camps. Um, but relationships that are invested in that, I've almost never seen that happen. Mm. Um, so and invest in those people, encourage your congregation, encourage them, encourage their families to sing, um, encourage them to, uh, you know, get, get them excited about how we get the people excited about anything. We get people excited about a food when we describe how quiet tastes so good. So we, we explain why you love, when you, I love it when you talk about the hymns that you love, because I'm going, I haven't even heard of that stupid hymn. I bet it's weird, but Dever's loving it, so I'm going to love it too, because Dever loves it, you know? So. so what's the, is there a kind of hymn or song that pastors shouldn't use, they should get rid of? Or can you use like choruses and traditional hymn? There's not a style you think you need to be aware of that. Yeah, no, I think the earliest translation of the word hymn that we have was it was an Augustinian thing where he said a hymn is a song of praise to God. You know, I, I, I don't believe I don't believe at all in the, the idea that one the one style is holier than another, except obviously Irish music's always holier than everybody <laughs> else's. But I don't believe in a in a uh, you know. But it, but we, but it, it's it's what brings our family together. That's the key thing. It's not a style of music that is higher or better or cooler or inner or reaches this and reaches that. No, it's the songs that allow the seventy five year old. And his ten-year-old great-grandson, Amen. and the thirty-four-year-old yeah. and the fifty-eight-year-old to look at each other and sing and go, "Isn't this the greatest yeah. news we could ever have?" Yeah. That's the that's the song you want. So you find what that is for your congregation, and you do it well, and you sing it to the glory of the Lord. And the idea that uh, the accompaniment can often be too loud, and that discourages congregational singing. Any comment on that? Work it out. Yeah. <laughs> Work it out. It just you know, varies a lot. That's right. That's right. That's right. The, yeah. You know, the, 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 the organist I know. Who, who complained most about about the, 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 the loudness of modern music played the organ louder than 
than, yeah. than the bands did. And, uh, you know, what it takes to have a, 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 a black gospel celebration that is authentic and that is, and that is exhilarating um, is a different volume yeah. than, than, than reformed, re- reformed psalm singing in Scotland. You know, yeah. so work yeah. it out. Work it out. Sir, love your people. But you think it's possible for congregations to sing dense, rich truths and long hymns like My Song is Love Unknown in a fast food age? Look, Martin Luther came along when, the, when song, Congregation Singing had basically died for three, four hundred years, and he said, how am I going to recover it? He says, we're going to get people to sing songs by teaching them deep songs mm. and explaining to them why it's so important. Mm. And that's how he did it. You know? And he found melodies that, that united, <clears throat> united the group of people together. So in, in, in this year, and we're recording this interview in 2017, the 500th anniversary of the posting of the 95 Theses by Luther and Wittenberg, in this year, when a lot of evangelicals are thinking about the Reformation, you would say, pastors, listen, a lot of the Reformation's success was actually due to the hymns. That's exactly right. And that's, that's, why, we, that's, why, we, um, that's why we have the, the conference on this year, obviously, as well, because so much of the conversation in the media is about, is about the history and the politics and the scandals of Luther. And then so much of the Christian celebration is about the theology and the ecclesiology. And yet so much of the energy of it was congregational singing. So... Um, that really inspired you know, the book and the conference and really us to give two years of our lives to saying, basically, well, how would Martin Luther have tackled this problem if he was mm. around today? Mm. And so we so sing is a, is a, it's a, a, we did a, we're doing a book and a conference to teach and encourage pastors. And then we're doing everything from the, their, our kids' hymnals, doing a thing called Family Sing. And we're doing an album called Sing. And, uh, and just a lot of other materials to try and get people excited about it. In a normal church, do you think you can have different styles in the song? So... Or would you have a Sunday where you do sort of traditional African-American music and then the following Sunday you're doing Western style and the following Sunday rock and the following Sunday country? I mean, how, how do you mix different styles practically in a church? Or do you just have to say, look, Mark, every church has their own kind of character. You just have to figure out what your mix is. Yeah. Yeah, I struggle to care. Um, the, the congregation singing to each other about the beauty, the glory of the Lord is the big thing. So however they do that, however your musicians are equipped to do it, you do that and you help them sing it and you work it out and God bless you. So sing it well, you yeah. know, I mean, music, you know, I mean, the Psalms are. So you're not there. trying to, you, you would not encourage pastors to try to make sure that their congregations are musically well-educated. Oh yeah. yeah. It should always be done well, but I'm not going to force them to decide a certain style. A certain canon of music. You know what I mean? That's that, what I learned. What I learned from those two Sundays was that there was... Brooklyn Tabernacle and Capitol Hill Baptist would not musically combine, but yet they both worked mm-hmm. because they'd asked the right questions. And so um, that's, that's, that, that's the key thing. It's how do we help our people sing and we work mm-hmm. it from there. So what do you do in your own local church? What's your role there? Um, I'm Tommy's mate. So um, I'm Tommy's buddy. So Tom, Tommy's a music director. All right. And Jim is the pastor. Tommy's sitting here recording this for us. Thank you, and, Tommy. Uh, and, uh, and I'm kind of their buddy. Is that, my, is that my real Tommy buddy? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so we, I kind of, I'm over in the road. So, Kristen and I, Kristen and I help, and um, yeah, yeah, and yeah, low level sage, I would say, you know, like associate sage, I would say. <laughs> so we're, it's great, you know, we we're all in this building together and um, live in the area, and um, so it's been fun to kind of dream. And then they're both involved in our conference with us, so in September, so. It's fun being part of this team, and they let me lead. They let Chris and I lead some services. Okay, so you do do some s- song leading, or I, what yeah, yeah, we, call yeah, it? we additioned, we passed, so we're good. <laughs> um, are there things you think of, given that pastors are listening to this, we don't have that much longer? Are there things you think that music leaders wish their pastors understood? Like if you could tell a pastor, listen, here are a couple of things you may not have thought of. Maybe your music leader hasn't had the guts to tell you or the wisdom to tell you. The, here are a couple of things they would like you to understand. Well, I think there's, there's two sides of the coin. You know, I think the pastor has to lead. You know, and it, it, doesn't, take a, it, doesn't, take a psycho, it doesn't take a genius psychoanalyst to work out that the, the pastors and musicians aren't naturally bound to get on. You know, they have, they have too many similar things that shouldn't be similar and too many differences that shouldn't be differences. So it's a relationship that's always going to require work and patience and graciousness and godliness to make it work. Um, but that said, uh, I think the pastor has to take a lead, but taking a lead in a way that inspires people. Hmm. And if you're actually serving God's people, then the pastor has to model that by serving his musicians. You know, he has to love them. He has to be excited about them, what they're doing, enjoy the beauty of their art and their music and encourage them. 
So pretty sensitive about criticism. Be careful with that. Musics, musicians or artistic yeah, types. I don't I, know. Yeah, I think I, I think I think we yeah, I think we need sensitivity. I think we need sensitivity, but we need honesty and good. I mean, a good relate a good relationship should be allowed to tell that, you know, and a good sense of hierarchy should be able to tell that. I think when there is no relationship or there's no sense of infrastructure and hierarchy, that's when I see most of the insensitivity. I don't know. What do you think? Tell me. Yeah. So I think I think a clear clear lines of what everyone's role is, and then really investing in the people. You know, it's 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 been so wonderful to watch so many relationships like a bloom up, where the pastor and the musician get on, and even my wife and I, we do you know we do our Christmas tour. We've had the same seven families on stage for five consecutive years, hmm. same seven families. You know, and uh, and uh, and then with writing, you know, Stuart was over last week, and that was we're in our starting our sixteenth year of writing songs together. So there's a there's a beauty in, in investing in, in relationships that, that, that travel down, travel. And right now, you're working on a book to try to help pastors figure out these very waters. It's for the whole congregation. I'm, not, I'm probably not clever enough to write a book for pastors, but it's, it's called Sing. And it's for, it, I guess it's for pastors and music directors, but it's to share with your congregation. So it's, it's explaining why we sing. We're created to sing, that, we, that we're commanded to sing, that we're compelled through this incredible gospel to sing. And then it looks at each of the things we talked about, what happens when we sing. So the individual, the renewing of the mind and the individual, the, what it means for families, what it means for congregations, what it means for the witness of our churches. And then we do a little, a little sort of 10-point blast practical thing at the end, so, which we're kind of excited about. It's just a starter. So, and so, if- so practical comments for pastors, then for parents, then for song leaders, then for musicians, songwriters, um, and everyone. So. And if pastors are particularly interested in this, what can they do to? When does it come out? Oh, um, the the thing the, the conference is 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 is, is out now. It's uh, you can go to Getty Music, or the book will be available at Getty Music, but it's also available through Broadman and Holman at Lifeway, and in the Lifeway stores in September. So they, I think they both come out the same week, September. So. And the conference is in September of two thousand seventeen. People That's will need correct. to register by when? I don't know. There's they're over. It's over. It only went on sale two weeks ago. And it's over half sold, so it's I would say go quicker. I go quicker than. But this is just to be clear. This is not just a conference for the music ministers. It's for pastors and musicians, right? And that's a goal. And our friends, my my pastor for my first five years, Sir Alistair Begg, he's coming. Um, D. A. Carson's Alistair speaking on why we sing. D. A. Carson is speaking on on singing and the and the Christian mind. Um, uh, Paul Tripp is talking about singing in the Christian family and community. And, uh, Dave, and David Platt is talking about the radical witness of congregation mm, singing. So we've got, got some good guys, and we're, we're still trying to get a couple of others lined up. For so us. let's say I'm listening to this, I'm a church leader, but I can't carry a tune. Should I come to this conference? Why not? You know, every, a, church leader, a church leader who can't carry a tune, absolutely nothing changes from a church leader who's, who, was, who was, did five years in the Metropolitan Opera. You know, his responsibility is to be at the front, to be passionately singing, to be in choosing the, helping choose the songs, to be encouraging the musicians. Only difference is if he's in a large church, he turns his microphone off. Hmm. Do you know what I mean? That's the only difference. So, uh, you know, we're all created to sing. That's the thing. Yeah. You know, God has created us that way. And we're created, obviously, we're created as human beings to praise, but part of that is singing. And, yeah. and you know, when I listen to my three girls, I have a little video here of my three girls singing Jesus Loves Me. And when they sing it, you know, they all sing different and different qualities. But if you're going to tell me that one of them is more special to me, it isn't. And then, so, in a sense, that's an analogy of how the Lord hears our praises. Mm-hmm. I had a, a letter, um, an email, since it's what I'm fiddling on my phone for, looking for right now, five years ago. From, it's, from very, the, it's, very, it's very millennial of you. Uh, oh, oh, every time I get interviewed by a millennial, he sits on the phone while he's asking so many questions. This is from a member of our church that I did not know well, African-American young man who worked for the football program at uh, Howard University, right. African-American, certainly African-American university near us. Um, and he just sent me this unsolicited. I just want to take the opportunity to encourage you and thank you for your selection of Puritan hymns in the service. It has been a continuous source of encouragement and a powerful vehicle for God's comforting grace in my life and the life of my family. Just as God has used the doctrine of grace to change my thinking, he's used these hymns to change my emotions and build new affections for the truth. It's a joy for me to sing these songs. Music is and has always been a major part of my life. Music has always affected my emotions and thoughts for good or bad. I'm a 27-year-old black male who was born and raised in the Washington, D.C. area. My pre-conversion taste for music consisted mostly of hip-hop and R&B artists, some local bands, and a sprinkling of more eclectic artists. 
Regardless of the genre, though, I had a particular affinity for the most outrageous and vulgar lyrics and artists in those categories. Secular music oftentimes sets the tone for sinful thoughts that would lead to sinful actions. I also grew up in a church where much of the music I remember fell under the, contemporary, uh, under the category of gospel music, contemporary gospel, Negro spirituals, some updated renditions of old hymns. I place a small g in the word gospel because the actual gospel of God, while it may have been the inspiration of most of these songs, is not often expressed or explained clearly, but merely alluded to or purposely avoided by the people who sing them. So while many times in the past I was able to join in the emotional and energetic explosion that the music encouraged, I truly had no sense of the gravity of the subject matter. By the grace of God, my current condition is much different. That's partly due to God changing me, making me receptive, but also because the word of God is central in the music. In this sense, the music at Capitol Hill has been an adjustment, but a wonderful and refreshing adjustment. Don't get me wrong, these songs often make me deeply emotional, and I believe God wants me to be emotional. He created me so. But if my emotions are attached to a distortion of the truth or an outright lie, what good does that do to me, and what honor does that do to God? Now, do I think songs sung in church have to be Puritan hymns, sung to acoustic guitar, the only songs that glorify God? No. I love Shy Lynn and Trip Lee, other solid Christian hip-hop artists as well, and I imagine that songs from Shy and Trip will either somehow be sung by congregations or read as poetry by Christians a hundred or so years from now in the same way. Not because the style of music is appealing, but because the theological integrity and substantive doctrine that they share will always be useful to guide the hearts of saints toward Christ and the gospel. That's why I absolutely love the music we sing at CHBC. But there is even something sweet to me in the style of singing. It's in the fact that it sounds radically different from anything else. I come from a very soulful black Christian background, and many of my friends, co-workers, and relatives look at me like I'm crazy because I like the music at CHBC. To me, it's a good thing that the music that I sing to God and to my own soul has nothing in common with other music in terms of sound. To my ear, it's nothing like the music from my former life, nothing like the music I hear at work, nothing like the shallow, feel-good music that sometimes passes as gospel. Far from being superficial, I think that this difference has been healthy and helpful. There's a sense of great reverence in this distinction. God is holy and not at all common. It forces me to soberly approach the subject of the song, God, and simultaneously delight in the rich and dense theological truth that my lips and my heart are singing. When I hear a person humming a song from church in the hallway, I immediately recognize it and have a different appreciation for that than if I heard them humming a song I enjoy from the radio. These songs have helped me anchor my soul in the gospel. How awesome is it to take some of the most complex and mind-bending truths of the Bible and put them in something as organic to the soul as a song? I've read and memorized Bible verses and learned a lot of the doctrines of the faith, and these things have been invaluable to me and nourishing to me. But there are times when I'm struggling and my mind is foggy and my memory is cloudy and my thinking is skewed. In the moment when the feelings of doubt suffocate me or the feelings of guilt over my sin crushes me or the anxiety I feel daily troubles me, the Lord uses these songs to softly and gently remind me of the beauty of the truth. When I look at my prayers and I get the feeling that my words aren't even going past the ceiling and I'm distracted and there's so much sin and my prayers are so feeble that only minutes have gone by at this point, I could remind myself of Hebrews 4 and Christ's role as high priest. But what a comfort it is to hum before the throne of God above. I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, who ever lives and pleads for me. Or when I'm wondering if I'm a Christian at all, thinking how is someone like me actually going to make it to heaven? I'm so weak. I have nothing good even when I do. What I do stinks and even my faith seems so small. Or when I'm anxious or that heavy feeling in my chest hits me. I might have the clear head to rehearse 2 Corinthians 5.21 or remember the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. But when I'm crying and too tired to think clearly what a comfort it is to sing to myself and to God, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Or if my mind gets me thinking that Christ couldn't or doesn't care about me, I'm on my own, or even that Christ won't save me, but he doesn't love me in particular. The words of John 14 or 17 will show me the truth, but when my emotions won't budge, I can sing to my heart, though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. God gives me a song from CHBC for every doubt and doubt feeling in my head, and this makes him sweet to me. And I don't have to second guess those feelings of comfort because I can be confident they're grounded in the truth of the scripture and that the spirit of the one is impressing these things on my soul. What a weapon against the lies of my heart. I love the music at CHBC. Thank you for showing me the truth through song. Thank you for being committed to singing songs that teach the truth, regardless of whether they appeal to any person's particular sensibilities. And thank you for singing them in a way that distinguishes these from any other song. And please continue. P.S. Even my son Darren, who is two, knows the difference between a song that he hears in a Disney movie and Jesus songs or Jesus movies, though he doesn't have much of a clue about its content. And that's a beautiful thing to see. Completely unsolicited. It's brilliant. Isn't that wonderful? I've since gotten to know the brother well. He's in our church. He's a great guy. Yeah, but I, I think that speaks as much as much rather than uh, even in the exclusivity of, of 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 Christian or church art. I think that it speaks to a congregational voice that has 
been built around a congregation. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? That's how it grows. You know, I, I, this may be a little bit of an odd illustration, but there's a famous story. Lewis used to meet with the Inklings in Oxford once a week at the Eagle and Child. Then once a week, there was the three of them would have met. And when one of them died, I forget each of the personalities, but one, when one of them died, the other guy said, Lewis said, the one comfort was, it meant I would have more, t- I'd be, I would get to know the other one better. But he said, I never did because the third one brought a unique personality mm-hmm. out. And so congregational singing, this is, we're created for community. And so we sing, we sing to one another. It's mm-hmm. important to get, you know, I think you guys have emphasized well, but is that we, as pastors, whether we've, even do our choirs and our worship bands, let them know they're not, they're singing to one another. They're mm-hmm. singing these truths to one another to encourage. But as we try and find music, that is our people singing to one another, that will create its own beautiful music, its mm-hmm. own beautiful art, you know what I mean? And wherever that is. Well, Keith, thank you for taking time to write the songs that you do, and I mean that about the words, but also the music, working on parts. I know that takes extra time to try to think through how can you include that. But brother, you, I think you're an example of the kind of thing that you are championing, and I'm thankful for that. Well, and it much. blesses countless congregations around the world, and I pray that you... And your dear wife will be given many more years to serve the Lord like this. Oh, thank you very much. Mark, it's always a privilege. And thank you for your continued encouragement to us. Can you believe 20 years since we first met over over an an English fried breakfast? Amen. (laughs) Thanks, Keith. (laughs)